Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss what's being done to reduce the spread of infections in the clinical practice setting or moreover in hospitals and other acute care facilities. With me to discuss the topic is the president-elect of the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America and University of Maryland professor, Dr. Anthony Harris. Welcome, Dr. Harris. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. As always, let me begin with some brief background. As I noted in my introduction to the November 13th interview with Infectious Diseases Society of America's Amanda Jessick, healthcare-associated infections harm or kill hundreds of thousands of Americans each year. The CDC estimates 2 million hospitalized patients are infected each year that cause or contribute to almost 100,000 deaths annually, more deaths from HIV, AIDS, breast cancer, and auto accidents combined. For example, according to AHRQ, one drug-resistant infection, MRSA, increased in hospitals 16-fold between 1994 and 2004. Added to this, this, measured against other countries, uh, the U.S. fares poorly, and Dr. Harris will clarify on that point. According to the Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics, and Policy in 2009, among 32 developed countries, the U.S. had the third highest MRSA-resistant infection rate. Um, Also, two infection rates within the U.S. are highly variable. Again, with me to discuss what's being done to prevent the transmission of healthcare-associated infections is Dr. Harris. Dr. Harris's bio is posted on the website. So with all that, Dr. Harris, let me begin by asking why comparatively are U.S. infection rates high, or feel free certainly to clarify what's being asked. So I just wanted to clarify that um, th- there's two main areas we deal with in um, hospital epidemiology and that tie into and are kind of used l- loosely interchangeably as healthcare-associated infection rates. So you have the actual healthcare-associated infections, which are things like surgical site infections, central line-associated bloodstream infections, ventilator-associated pneumonias. And then you have, I think, what you're referring to in the studies you're referring to is, is overall antibiotic resistance rates, such as with um, bacteria such as methicillin-resistant Staph aureus or MRSA, or bacteria such as CREs, carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae. So to, to get at your specific question, the United States, um, unfortunately, you're correct, does have, compared to other countries, a high MRSA rate compared to other countries. The feeling, um, well, first off, no one definitively knows why that is. Some of the theories relate to both, I think, positives and negatives of the U.S. healthcare system. So positive would be that um, we've come a long way in terms of keeping people alive, and we have a much more aggressive um, healthcare system dealing with patients who have things like bone marrow transplants or malignancies or renal transplants. These patients have multiple hospital admissions, multiple courses of antibiotics, and they're unfortunately kind of the perfect setup for antibiotic-resistant bacteria such as MRSA. So some people would argue that we're um, performing poorer than other countries because our healthcare system is keeping certain patients alive longer. Who are just sicker anyway. Correct. Correct. Other countries would somewhat appropriately argue that maybe the reason we have more of an MRSA problem than other countries is that we use too many antibiotics when they shouldn't be used, and that we use too many antibiotics in um, 
animal, uh, our food chain product, so chickens and pork, uh, pork and things like that. And um, I, I'd say those are kind of the three main theories related to MRSA. What, one point I wanted to clarify, and I know we'll get we'll get to likely later, is that um, healthcare-associated infection rates actually in the United States have been dec decreasing dramatically, and other countries don't record their rates in the same standardized way as we do. So it actually is difficult to compare, for example, bloodstream infection rates in the United States to other countries. So I would say overall you're correct from an antibiotic resistance point of view. The United States has a particular problem more so than other um, countries, although there are other countries like um, um, Spain, as an example, or some South American countries that have particular resistance problems similar to ours. But I think in the area of actual healthcare-associated infections, we've made great strides, and the U.S. is doing f fairly well, actually, compared to other countries. And in the developed world, it's still worse. Correct. So let's go. My next question sounds very simple, but it's, it's, it's certainly not. And that is, despite all the evidence demonstrating the effectiveness of hand hygiene, why is it that hand hygiene compliance rates are frequently found to be no better than 50%? And this is a question of great importance because studies show that upwards of 40% of these uh, transmitted infections are actually the result of healthcare workers' hand uh, contamination. So this is a basic as it relates to preventing disease uh, and transmission of these uh, infection rates, but yet we seem to have a lot of problems with hand hygiene. So let me, let me a answer first, the first section, I think, per, kind of personally and as a researcher. So as a researcher in the area of hospital epidemiology and infection control, some things that seemingly you'd think are obvious and easy to fix are unfortunately not. So from an antibiotic-resistant bacteria point of view, if we found an effective way to limit this use of antibiotics and improve hand hygiene, we would have a um, near-perfect solution, I think, to, to the spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. However, those two goals are much more complicated than they would seem on a simple level. So that um, when it comes to hand hygiene, there's 30 or 40 years of research of people studying multiple interventions that seem to have an initial impact to improve hand hygiene compliance and then unfortunately do not have sustainability. And so, although I think to uh, the average patient it would seem obvious that, well, why can't we get our hand hygiene compliance rates to 90 or 100 percent? When you actually explore the issue in more depth from a research point of view, it's actually very complicated. Now, the one thing I would say that I think is neglected is um, we've made a lot of progress in the last decade so that your numbers are correct in that on average 40 to 50 percent of people were washing their hands based as best we could gauge it because even that measurement is, is difficult to ascertain correctly because you don't have um, blinded observers as an example. But I think uh, an area that Shea supported and actually many members of Shea um, were the key developers of this, both the developer of the product, the issue of policies to say this is a solution and explaining why, is the alcohol-based um, hand disinfectants. So the basis of the alcohol hand-based disinfectant, like many 
um, bioengineering things that we hope will evolve the science was the idea was to properly wash your hands with soap and water required 30 to 40 seconds. The average healthcare worker would have to wash their hands 10 to 20 times an hour as an example. The alcohol-based product that was invented allows you to do it in 5 to 10 seconds. So in short, I think um, from a researcher point of view, we have made strides. The other thing I would say is, is um, things that we hadn't done that we are pushing more, and I think we're making great strides, um, are the following. is We're learning more about implementation science. And so people are starting to do research on what groups of interventions can truly improve hand hygiene compliance. The problem is that um, not enough hospitals in the U.S. are kind of bundling these interventions. Then the other thing is, is um, Society of Healthcare, Epi of America, is actually um, issuing a series of compendiums, which we'll get to, which is evidence-based guidelines of how they, what the evidence should be to prevent MRSA infections, present C, pre prevent C. diff, improve hand hygiene, so, so on. And, and we'll get to those. These are, um, will be completed in the year 2014, will be available um, to anyone for free and basically in our opinion serve as the basis of when you have a problem as a in a hospital how should you address this pro problem. Now pertaining to hand hygiene um, things that should be done which seem obvious but actually fairly labor-intensive to do is one accurate monitoring of hand hygiene compliance. So. The way it's often, most often done is via secret shoppers. The idea of you have a healthcare worker on a team who will record data as to what the compliance with hand hygiene is. Now, the reason that hadn't been done extensively is, is obviously as someone's monitoring hand hygiene compliance, they have to do that instead of doing something else. So it actually requires a fair amount of manpower. And until recently, most hospitals were not doing um, a formalized way of, of monitoring hand hygiene in multiple areas. There are other surrogate markers um, that, in, in my opinion, aren't as good, but, but may evolve things such as product usage. Can you track the amount of soap and alcohol that's used? And or, as technology advances, will there potentially be automated systems? I think that would be ideal, meaning I think if we were talking in 10 years' time, if there was a way to have your badge linked to the soap and water dispenser and the alcohol dispenser to 100% accurately say, oh, Anthony Harris had 50 opportunities during those eight hours he was seeing patients and here was his compliance. If you can feedback that data, I think that will, be, will help. So I think the first thing that we're suggesting is we need more accurate monitoring systems. Once you have that monitoring system, if that data is fed back more routinely, healthcare workers are competitive against each other and will improve their compliance. In addition, I think uh, more implementation tools of how do you behaviorally get people to com comply more often um, needs to be explored and needs to be studied. And that's the nut, as always, of behavior change. Let's go on to my asking you about our hospitals or and or other acute providers doing enough to uh, prevent transmission. And feel free to weave in, assuming they're not, what Shay's doing to try to help them um, actually do a better job. And let me just mention 
uh, for context, usually when we talk about this subject, we talk about what's the appropriate bundle of services. And these are usual, uh, usually barrier precautions, patient isolation, environmental cleaning, and universal testing, um, and or some mix thereof. And some countries um, have a more robust bundle than others, seem to be more effective than others, but in context of what hospitals can be doing or should be doing, I think that might be helpful for the listener. Sure. So j just to reiterate, I think, um, some of the main problems that hospital epidemiologists and hospitals deal with in this area are what well, we talked about, so the spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. But then there's the um, healthcare-associated infections themselves. And, and, and the big ones are the following. Surgical site infections, meaning you try to prevent a patient who's coming in for a surgery developing an infection at that site. Central line-associated bloodstream infections, with the idea being that in um, the hospitals, patients often need central lines in order to administer medications or for um, access. Those, unfortunately, um, can get infected, and we aim to prevent those. Ventilator-associated pneumonias, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, and then clostridium difficile rates. Now, um, to be honest, Shea's main focus is on all of those areas. And so, um, concretely, as I alluded to, Shea is publishing a compendium of strategies to prevent these healthcare-associated infections. The original um, compendium was published in 2008 and is freely available. And the, um, each of those are being revised, and the first ones are coming out in the next couple of months, and I think all of them will be done by the end of 2014. Now, I've had the pleasure of sitting on the MRSA compendium that's updated, and I think it's useful for your listener to hear a little bit about the process. So what ends up happening is, is you have an expert group that meets regularly and reviews the literature and tries to make it as evidence-based as possible. So as an example, for um, the, the, the central line-associated bloodstream infection, as an example, they review all the literature, all the literature that was contained that in the original recommendations of 2008 any new studies that have been done from 2008 to 2013, and they try to provide a blueprint for hospitals to say, hey, I really want to cut down my infection rates. What do I do? And what's the evidence? And then what's the evidence for different things so that they can say, in a cost-effective way, choose, well, the evidence for this is completely clear. As an example, for, for, for Clavsey, I think no one would argue that when you're inserting a central line, you're much better off using chlorhexidine, and you're much better off using it, treating it as a surgical procedure and paying attention to sterile gloves and sterile gowns and a, a, a sterile area. And um, work has demonstrated that the use of a checklist, similar to what's used by airline pilots, of an idea of here's the five or six things we know seem to prevent a central line associated bloodstream infection, and these are the five things that are critical when you're inserting it. Let's make sure all of these are done. All the steps are taken. All the steps are taken. Now, what's interesting is, is for each of these infections, I'd say we have three to four things that are extremely well supported by the highest level of science. So those are somewhat no-brainers. And then there's about a half dozen things to a dozen things 
where the d data seems convincing, but it's not supported by highest level science. But then unfortunately, there's a lot of gray area. And this is specifically related to how best to implement these things. So the, the compendium in each of these articles tries to make recommendations so that the frontline um, hospitals, whether it's the CMOs or the CEOs driving policy, the hospital epidemiologists or the bedside um, healthcare workers know what best to do, but it tries to provide it in as evidence-based um, fashion as possible. Let me ask you this question about um, uh, whether they're uh, chief executive officers or others, medical directors or others in, in, in these acute settings. There seems to be, or can be, this uh, view that these infections are so prevalent, there's now resistance to treatment thereof. Um, so there seems to be this sense of acceptance or that it may be, in the phrase I'm sure you've heard, the cost of doing a business. And I'll cite one example. You may be aware that Frontline uh, ran a piece uh, last year titled Hunting the Nightmare Bacteria. And in its conclusion, the deputy director of the NIH Clinical Center said, quote, unquote, the problem is never going to end and that it will be with us until the cows come home. So what's your sense relative, leaving aside how, of course, difficult it is and what the evidence is, but do you think there's some, something to the, to the fact that, or something to um, um, be concerned about where this may be seen as uh, too frequently accepted, or again, particularly since we have sicker patients, there are more surgical procedures, the care is more complicated, it's more team-based, that this is something that, again, will be with us, as he said, to the cows come home. Well, I think the short answer to that is no. So the following. I think that hospitals for um, decades have not um, concerned themselves closely enough with healthcare-associated infections. Now, I think in the last decade, um, hospitals are giving hospital epidemiologists more respect and more credit. So the joke I, that I used to say is, is hospital epidemiologists used to report to the janitor and no one really listened to them. So we had all kinds of advice, what to do and how to prevent things, but it wasn't really on their radar. For, for numerous reasons, it is on their radar now. So fortunately, most hospital epidemiologists actually report directly to the C-suite, CMOs and CEOs. I think the problem still is, is that the hospital epidemiologists are not given enough power and enough resources generally to um, tackle the thing full bore. In that, I think that healthcare associated infections rates, thanks to numerous groups, often led by Shea, have dramatically decreased um, o over the last decade. I still think there's room to go, and I think this room to go can be focused in numerous areas. So if you, if you look at some of the things um, so Shea has 2,000 members, um, and as you'll see, we have a pretty wide portfolio of things we try to do. So in addition to the, to, to the compendium, as an example of a document that I think is very important is, is that we're reworking um, the white, uh, what's called a white paper, which basically attempts to um, address gaps in knowledge um, and challenges in healthcare epidemiology. And it tries to give agencies such as the NIH and AHRQ and CDC a roadmap of what we think the unanswered questions are and where we think additional resources 
should be spent to move this science along. Now, as an example, if you look at the amount of money that has been spent on HIV research compared to the amount of money that's been spent on hospital epidemiology by the NIH, it's just dramatically different. But yet, if you look at the amount of uh, morbidity and mortality that healthcare-associated infections contribute, it, it's pretty close to where HIV is now. So we're not arguing that there should be a complete change in focus of where research dollars is, are spent, but we are arguing, I think, that more needs to be spent in, the, in this important area. There was a study that uh, concluded that uh, when you look at monies that NIH allocates per se disease condition, that this issue ranked 70th on the list. Right. Let me ask, lastly, uh, from the national policy perspective, there's always a lot of discussion always sooner or later about reimbursement. So I'll ask it more generally, however, if you were in charge, so to speak, and you could uh, change national policy, what do you think would be the more effective approaches uh, from that perspective? And of course, feel free to make comment. And there have been some modifications in reimbursement as it relates to you know, never events, hospital readmissions, et cetera, to try to uh, get at these issues. As a hospital epidemiologist, I think it's very good that some of the quality metrics that are driving reimbursement are things we monitor, such as central line associated bloodstream infection rates, C. diff rates. And these are in the hospital compare for Medicare. Correct. Correct. As an epidemiologist and someone who works with a number of people who do quality outcomes, I think that um, additional research should be done on what other outco quality outcomes um, provide additional value outside of our area. So I, I actually think that the readmission rate is an example of a um, very good global outcome that incorporates, obviously, healthcare-associated infections, but also other outcomes that I think are important. So in, in short, I think that the healthcare-associated infections that are part of um, the current um, reimbursement metrics, I think, are fair, generally fair, and I think we value the attention. I think that there needs to be a trend towards having other metrics as well. And like most areas, I think that if you look as an example at um, HCAP's patient satisfaction survey, I think that makes a lot of sense. But if you look at how the tool was developed, there needs to be a lot more validation, I think, of what quality metrics are needed, both within healthcare-associated infections and outside. I mean, one of my passions, um, both personally and professionally in, this society, in Shea, was I think Shea's done a really good job of identifying what research areas need to be studied, and I've done a great job trying to foster um, our group to drive this. So Shea formed a research network a little less than half a decade ago. And it was on a shoestring budget because we really had no funding for the network. And you had a bunch of hospital epidemiologists and infection preventionists across the country, and now we're up to about 244, that for a lot of studies volunteered their time because they thought the research questions were incredibly meritorious to move the science along. And in a little less than a half decade, We've published um, eight papers using the Shea Research Network, 
I think about another half dozen that are being planned or being done. And I think this is a tr tremendous credit to Shea to identify where problems are, set up a network to try to address these and, and move things along. And I think that um, Shea members, and thanks to, to Shea, have finally now in the last two years moved the level of science along. So the, the ultimate level of science, as an example, is a randomized trial. Until two years ago, the area of hospital epidemiology um, and infection prevention really had very few of these studies. In the last two years, we've had at least three randomized trials to try to address exactly what interventions in what settings are they helpful, harmful, or neutral. And I think that these are the exact kind of um, research that um, we need to continue so that we hopefully eventually reach our goal of preventing all healthcare-associated infections and really have um, an optimal understanding of how best to decrease the spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So time for one last question as we uh, sign off, and that is, will we have these infections with us till the cows come home? I, I, I'm optimistic, generally. I tend to see the glass half, um, half full. full, and I think that if you look at the amount of progress we've made in the last decade, um, that if we continue on this pace, the answer will be no, hopefully in 10 to 20 years' time. Thank you, Dr. Harris. We're at our time boundary. I'm very appreciative. Thank you.